You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, my name is Amadeep Gill, and I'm a partner at Trowers and Hamlins, specialising in public sector and commercial work. I'm delighted today to be continuing Trowers' examination of the Leveling Up agenda. The agenda, spoken about for so long, was given some firmer shape and direction, firstly, by a white paper published in February, and then a draft levelling up and regeneration bill forming part of the Queen's speech earlier this year. Now, commentators have been split on the ambition, scope, and likely success of this flagship policy. And with the prevailing global headwinds impacting on government, there are rumours that there has been a loss of momentum, both within government and elsewhere. Now, as to whether these conclusions are fair or premature, well, that's what I'm looking forward to discussing today with our guest, the evergreen Nick Walkley, who is Principal and President of UK Strategic Advisory at Averson Young. It's great to have you here with us today, Nick. How are you? Uh, I'm uncertain what the phrase evergreen means. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. I, I just just roll with it, Nick. Roll uh, with yeah. it. I, I suppose the alternative is being the deciduous Nick Walkley, which uh, I, I wouldn't enjoy. It's great to be here, Amadeep. Uh, it's also uh, a really great thrill that I'm joined today by uh, Everson Young's latest recruit, Kat Hanna, who many listeners will know from social media, her work at Lendlease and previously at the Centre for London, uh, the pair of us are going to attempt to make some sense, uh, some being used in the most broad uh, meaning rather than any legal phrase, Amadeep, of this. No, absolutely. And Kat, welcome. Thank you for joining us on what I understand is your first day. It is. I'm about two hours in um, and found out about this meeting about um, 20 minutes ago. So um, great to be part of it. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll add something of some value. I'm sure you will. It's a pleasure to have you both with us today. And um, let's get that conversation going. So can I ask you, Nick, Kat, what what your first reaction was to the levelling up white paper? So uh, my first reaction was, uh, my God, uh, Dostoyevsky's clearly been involved in the drafting of this thing. And and whilst I say that jokingly, Actually, I, I did feel that having attempted to read the whole thing, it was in danger of being something for absolutely everyone with almost nothing certain as a result of that. So really big on history and strategy. Uh, it felt to me like the detail of implementation was an awful long way off. Yeah, I mean, I always feel, uh, you sometimes feel quite sorry for people to have to write these things because as policy types, you tend to say, oh, well, the devil's going to be in the detail. And then you get something that looks like it's incredibly detailed and we turn around and we're like, oh my goodness, it's so long and really detailed. Um, but I think, um, <laughs> as Nick pointed out, where the detail was was probably more, I guess, in the kind of, you know, preamble and, you know, it almost, you know, takes you back to the, the think tank days of talking about what is agglomeration? Why does levelling up matter, you know, there's quite kind of big theoretical stuff, which, you know, quite nicely written. But again, it goes, mm. well, what does this actually start translating to in terms of policy and what are we going to be measuring success against? And, and geekily, I guess, the other thing is I started to play the spot the bits Andy Haldane had written versus the bits the civil servants had written. 
versus the bits that Michael Gerb had really insisted on trying to get in. It did feel like, uh, this is not my uh, joke, but I agree, it did feel a bit like, now that's what I call urban regeneration, and it had a lot of almost everything in there. Uh, whether it adds up to a coherent whole, I think, is uh, a second question. Um, I mean, the, the other thing I just really want to say up front is there isn't a lot of money in there. No, no. Uh, and I know it's only a white paper, but it feels like ambition has got to be matched by some sort of resource. Otherwise, uh, we're going to be in real difficulty. And actually, that money point is such a fundamental one, isn't it, Nick? In that when when we look at comparable agendas around the globe and looking principally at Eastern Europe when Germany was reunited, the East and the West, and that was a 30-year agenda at 1.3 trillion euros. The, the money that's been put up is is at best piecemeal in comparison to that. It, is If the money's not there, what value has the white paper got is one of the criticisms that's been leveled at it. Do you think, you know, uh, can I tease out that statement from you a little bit further? So uh, I guess this is a question about how change actually happens in the British state. What I mean by that is there is a school of thought that definitely says this is just about money. But ultimately, I think what the Blair Brown government shows us is it has to be about more than money. It's also got to be about so where is the institutional reform that's required? And I think it's probably right to argue that an awful lot of that was far too top down in the Blair Brown years, that even though it was dressed up as local stuff, everything from, oh, I don't know, the single regen budgets all the way through neighbourhood renewal had a very top down feel to it. Uh, but where where does that incentive for reform come from? And then also, who controls the cash? And I think it's really, really interesting that the model that appears to be gone for here is you've got to get the framework right first and then Whitehall will begin to deliver. Uh, so that's why, you know, the missions, which place power very strongly in individual departments, the emphasis on a big historic framework, which feels to me like a, an appeal to mandarins to do something beyond their own careers, and that therefore the detail will follow. Um, it's a big gamble, that, isn't it? You know, you've got to trust you can then win what will be I mean, hand-to-hand -hand fighting with individual government departments to get them to really take this agenda seriously. And, uh, you know, my concern would be that to date, what's in the levelling up regen bill is largely within the remit of the DLUC with very little reaching into the other areas that matter, you know, education, uh, transport, uh, so it, it feels like an attempt to join up, but it's no more than a framework at the moment. And there definitely isn't the money. Can I take you back? We, before we started recording, you know, we were reminiscing on the fact that we've known each other for, you know, the best part of 20 years. But taking you back to your kind of local government career, especially the, the London part of that local government career, the predominant part of it. Do, do you think it's leaving London behind? Do you think the levelling up agenda, uh, another criticism is that, you know, in order to level up, it doesn't mean the pushing down of other areas, particularly London. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Do you think there could be more done to support London as well? Do you think, you know, there's been too much emphasis on London previously? Um, a, a lot of 
to unpack there. And perhaps, Kat, you have some thoughts on that as well. I can, I can almost feel the simmering <laughs> coming out. Of my so here. So I'll leave it to say, uh, look, I'll kick off here by saying, look, what the levelling up uh, white paper does is it, it sort of pulls a very curious trick of framing economic issues as geographic ones rather than ones of inequality per se within places and within communities. So you have to kind of buy that agenda. And if you do, then it is legitimate to move resources from one part of the country to the other. Uh, personally, yeah, uh, I just find it almost unimaginable that you can move the sorts of money that are required without having a very strong London economy, uh, that it's at the heart of... Uh, how we might generate growth for the whole uh, of the country. So debates about has it got too much or too little are really to miss just the central point in London. But Kat, I can feel you're almost burning a hole in the screen here. Uh, not that my opinion is not that strong on it. No, I think I'd, I'd probably make a couple of points in response to that. And I think firstly, which is, you know, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if we kind of bring our mind back to, I guess, kind of the problem to which the levelling up agenda, if we were to take it, on face value, what it's intending to solve is really this issue of uneven productivity, particularly between, you know, often quoted stats and you know, the, the gap between London and its regional cities in terms of productivity is way bigger than we see in a lot of our, you know, our European counterparts. And obviously, Andy, you know, you referenced, you know, East Germany and the resources that were put behind that. And again, that was very much about closing that massive kind of chasm that existed between the performance of the two economies and obviously the impact that that economic performance had on people's quality of life and all the other things that we're talking about as well. So I think kind of echoing Nick's point, you know, the UK productivity issue is not one to which London is immune. Mm -hmm. And actually, given the role of London in the UK economy, addressing productivity in the capital is, you know, critical to addressing UK productivity overall. I think the second point, and I think, you know, there's, you know, for people like me that probably do spend so too much time spectating on the sort of London and the rest of the UK, who gets too much, who's funding what, who's help, who's being helpful in this debate around allocation of resources. I do think, and I think we've probably seen this a bit in the reaction, for example, to the local election results quite recently, is that there is an extent to which probably doing well in London or being seen as sort of celebrating London, putting resources into London is not particularly politically expedient for the, the governing party. So there is a question to which does the levelling up agenda, because almost it is so broad and can be used as sort of anything to, to any one person, almost becomes a bit of a justification for what is actually probably more of a political rationale for a best ignoring London or actually at worst taking resources you know away from London and characterizing London falsely as a city that's had it too good for too long and probably needs taking down the head. I think um that's punchy. It's very I think the uh the interesting thing to watch in this space is actually if if Katty's right, and I think uh, there's no reason to doubt there is definitely a hefty political motivation in here, the critical thing will actually be the chapters on devolution. Mm. Because they're the thing that the department can do really without recourse to anyone else. They're relatively cheap to do, and they do reconfigure other power relationships. And the extent to which 
those devolution powers I grasped by the sort of red wall seats versus what I actually see happening, which is the home counties, which are much more homogenous. Uh, you'll know from your own career, Amadeep, are yep. much more coherent as functional bodies. Mm. Uh, I fully see county deals racing ahead, whereas deals for you know the East Midlands, the sort of hinterlands of the area between the West Midlands and uh, Wales, those spaces being much trickier to land in a coherent and ambitious way. So you may end up with a really interesting inverted legacy that the southeast home counties do begin to get more powers that over time, therefore, they become useful vehicles for investment. And that the southeast, rather than just London, actually begins to differentiate itself even more from the mm. rest of the country. Actually, that's a really interesting point on devolution, Nick, because we've just done um, working with the think tanks and real in-depth research on devolution, the extent of it, what it should involve listening to local leaders um, about their aspirations. And we wait with bated breath, really, as to what government will say around the two trailblazer deals with Andy Burnham and Andy Street in Manchester and the West Midlands, respectively, because I think that will set the scene for other devolution deals and the extent to which government is willing to flex and allow a delegation of powers and for regions to set their own destinies. And the big thing around devolution, though, it it has to be the right fit for the, the relevant area uh, and jurisdiction because people don't want necessarily a cookie cutter approach. And those three levels set out in the white paper don't necessarily fit everybody's aspirations. But it's an interesting space. As you say, it's a it's an easy and potentially cost effective win for government with regard to leveling up agenda and pushing power down uh, in arguably uh, the place where it needs to be, which is uh, the region that is going to be most impacted by it. I just want to touch on a couple of things that we've spoken about that we kind of intimated around me in terms of headwinds and you in terms of the lack of delivery. But given the impact of the Ukrainian war, the cost of living crisis and potential trade disputes with the EU, what do you actually think is the likelihood of delivery of this agenda, especially as we've got a an election partway through some of the anticipated measurement timelines as well? Not that that is too leading a question, I hope. So I think the answer lies in a really simple first question, which is, who are the 20 towns who were much heralded in the launch of the white paper that were going to be subject to, uh, wait for cats laugh, King's Cross style regeneration? What does that mean? Um, so we know of one or two, but there's been no announcement. And if government cannot yet settle with local places and the local government bodies on which 20, how robust is this agenda when there's some really severe headwinds is, I think, open to question. It feels like the machinery required to turn a white paper into a broader reform agenda has got some way to go yet. So I I am very, very nervous. Of course, it could well be that, you know, we get a sort of a Paul Daniels ta-da moment and that uh, the response to a recession is a progressive investment-driven, you know, cash-heavy agenda. But it doesn't feel to me no. like this government is in that space at the moment. No, and less likely, I think, given the confidence vote and the, uh, and some of the political murmurings that have followed. But um, Kat, did you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think I think a couple of thoughts on that, which is, you know, I think one possibility, and I think we're seeing this to an extent in some of the discussion around levelling up already, is the degree of conflation of the levelling up agenda with addressing the cost of living crisis. Because again, I think there is such a broad a use of language mm. um, around levelling up, but actually it kind of lends itself, you know, to, to do that already. Again, not sure I think it's something that particularly is helpful. And again, I think there will be plenty of people again that will tell you again if you look to a city like London, where there will be a huge amount of people who are already hit, being hit by the cost of living crisis, that that inflation is actually potentially incredibly dangerous, actually, um, in terms of what it means, you know, for people's quality of life and those who are already struggling. I think secondly, in this point, you know, I think Nick's point about the, you know, these 20 towns is, you know, the other challenge in, in the context of these various other headwinds is the question of timeframes. Yeah. You know, the difficulty, you know, and we're obviously speaking to the converted here, I imagine, you know, with these large-scale regeneration projects, is they take a hell of a lot of time to actually start seeing the benefits. When you start talking about, you know, all these things around place, you know, probably less so around employment, but a lot of the things that both the government will want to see in terms of return on investment, in terms of any potential private sector partners, but also actually in terms of people and those who vote as well. So you have that quite long time frame in terms of people seeing benefits, but then, and what they're really feeling on the ground, are their quality of life changing? The reality is, and anyone who was around King's Cross will tell you, you've also got a fair amount of disruption. So you're trying to kind of play that, you know, stay with us for the long term, things are gonna get better. At the same time as also confronting these, you know, not just economic headwinds, but actually people feeling things aren't getting better yet and how that feels on the ground. And I think politically, that is going to be quite a difficult juggling act. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to tease out a few more kind of personal perspectives from you both, actually. Now, if you were to think about both the emphasis and resource and where that should be focused in terms of the agenda in order to create a, a more equal and balanced UK, where would you be pointing that to um, perhaps Nick first on that one? Yeah, so um, I think I've uh, said elsewhere, uh, my biggest disappointment with the paper having got to the end of it, and by God, it is long, isn't it? Um, mm. It offers a step up to the UK because when you print it off, it's your own portable step. You can just use it. To... <laughs> <laughs> you can level up. You can you're literally leveling up by standard. You're on four. I'll give you that. Um, it's my only joke. Um, is how light it is on bridging between economic inequality, productivity, and the need to make the shift to a more sustainable economy. And surely the opportunity is in that really challenging space around delivering sustainable solutions for energy, for production, but also thinking through what a sustainable version of using our assets, whether they be buildings, individuals, going forward might be. And it felt like uh, there was a real danger that almost the entire paper could be left behind very quickly as the private sector and the global debate moves very decisively into that space. So, you know, um, what's interesting, it's battery factories and wind farms, it's reusing assets in town centres. And I think that's where we might begin to also make an impact on productivity. But that stuff, the paper is really silent on, mm. as if, you know, we're waiting for levelling up too. We've just remembered climate change 
and sustainability uh, is yet to come, but it was surprisingly thin on detail in that space, whether I'd have expected, given the other commitments of the government, there to be a really strong push in that space. And that's where that's where we should be going, I think, in terms of thinking about future productivity, future economy. And Kat? Yeah, I think that's a really good point on sustainability. Mm. And I think if I can just turn back to also, again, that previous question about, you know, the economic headwinds, I think there was some reporting coming out of, you know, the latest climate change committee as well which again what would be devastating but in some ways you can see how it could happen is that sustainability falls off the bottom of the to-do list in light of everything that's becoming and particularly again if we're looking in terms of you know cost of living supply Mm. issues you know and all of these topics as well so I think I think that and linking it I think again to the green jobs and skills point is a huge one I think and actually probably bringing it back to the cost of living crisis, so I think one thing that becomes increasingly important is actually how this links in to skills and quality jobs. Yeah. You know, it is evident that a huge challenge is the increasing proportion of in-work poverty and the fact that actually, yes, people are getting work, but they are not getting the type of work that allows them to invest in their families and the places they live and in their communities. So I think linking that ideally to a sustainable sustainability agenda in terms of green jobs, in terms of providing that kind of stability of income and training that actually then provides some longevity to this endeavour, both for individuals, but actually for the UK as a whole. I couldn't agree more with that. It feels Mm. to me that there's a really challenging set of issues for the whole country that you feel most strongly outside of London, I think, that the skills economy, what's provided and who to, just doesn't work for local places and doesn't work for employers. Now, I'm always nervous that just because you see the problem doesn't mean to say that taking control of it gives you the answer. You know, and Barry Quirk's been really strong on this in London. Yeah, we should ask for more powers, but let's not pretend we can somehow book the whole global economy. (laughs) You know, there was some... You've got to be careful what you wish for. You've got to be absolutely, absolutely. But uh, the issue of skills... Skills leading to better quality jobs, more productive jobs, feels to me to be really central to what comes next. And isn't it an irony that we haven't got enough planners, we haven't got enough economists, we haven't got enough quality designers, we've not got enough people who understand place, and yet we've got a skills gap, we've got unemployment, we've got low pay, we're just not bridging the right communities into accessing the right careers. Piecing all of that together is is a very ambitious and, and very difficult task, and I, I, I may come on to that in a moment. But just from from an Avison Young perspective, how are you playing into to the agenda apart from recording podcasts with Trouds and Hamlins, of course, which must be the highlight? But um, is it a busy space for you? I don't mind saying that we've been fairly cautious in this space, uh, where we absolutely don't want to be is cheerleading for small sums of money that generate small fees for us that then lead everyone to ask the question, where's the outcome? You know, the easiest thing in the world would be to start filling in forms that make everybody feel good about themselves and win a bunch of stuff. So we're being careful to advise with and work with clients on what's the right proposition how much of that is really about getting government money and how much is it about properly shaping the offer for the place into the longer term? Because our view is uh, actually really strong propositions backed by the right capability will ultimately win out over a round of form filling. And I say that 
having worked in local government and at the centre, you know, the reason Manchester continues to grab headlines and, you know, great big dollops of government cash is because over time it has built capability in the right economic yeah. case rather than it's just good at filling in forms. Absolutely. Kat, did, did you have any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, on day one, that's probably a challenging one, but I think, I I think probably going back to what Nick said, is it's, it's actually getting the fundamentals of what makes a long-term successful place right. Um, and yes, kind of going with the direction of travel, um, but not being kind of steered too quickly or having the head turned too quickly to whatever the latest you know, agenda or announcement or funding round might be. Was it different at your previous employer? Was it was there more enthusiasm for it? Uh, that's a really interesting question, and to be honest, not one I'm massively um, able to respond to because I was kind of I was working pretty closely just on a London-based, a very hmm. London-based project. Admittedly, with a fair amount of um, working with various government departments as well. And just conscious of time and uh, to bring it to an end, uh, a really interesting conversation, by the way. Thank you. Um, if you were to provide some advice to government um, on how to progress the levelling up agenda, what would it be? Kat, why, why not you first on this one? Then we can wrap okay. up. Okay, I think um, two things. I think it's firstly, um, and it sounds like su it's such a cliche, but it is the point on what are the metrics um, that different departments are working to and how are they aligned? And actually, you know, if I will take an example from a previous project, you know, if you're trying to demonstrate the benefits of investment in transport infrastructure and only looking at the benefits in terms of reduced journey times and more people getting on trains and not looking at all the other investment um, yeah, you know, yeah. benefits in terms of, you know, sustainability, access to employment, better quality of place, regeneration, et cetera, you're only going to get so far and you'll just end up with this kind of inviting over who holds, you know, access to what pot. And that's number one. I think number two, um, perhaps we would say this, um, but it's actually about having the right skills and people involved as well. It takes a huge range of actors successfully transform places. And I think making sure that the investment in those people um, is going to be really important too. Crikey, I'm relieved I've got Kat in this organisation. <laughs> Crikey. Um, <laughs> I feel a lot better already. I, I would make three really simple points. The first is levelling up without proper spatial plans and capacity to go with them feels like an attempt to do some spear fishing. You might come up lucky occasionally, but in reality, you've got to figure out how the jigsaw fits together at some broad strategic level. Otherwise, it gets really, really challenging. Secondly, as Kat indicated, capacity and capability is a massive issue. You cannot do this on the basis of hope and good intentions. There's hard, long implementation yards ahead. And I think building leadership capability at a local mm. level is a major, major priority. And I don't just mean that in local government. I mean that in everything, Amadeep, from yep. you know, the legal profession, through planning uh, and so on and so forth. And then thirdly, I think you've got to figure out how exemplars or pilots become mainstream. And, you know, government is littered, you know, more pilots than British Airways. Uh, government's littered with that sort of stuff. And I'm, I remain unconvinced that the sort of light a small fire and everything will come ablaze around it sort of methodology really works. It can look a bit like hit and hope. So what's that broader thesis for change needs to be articulated? 
Absolutely. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Nick, Kat, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I may actually invite you back in when we're doing a one-year review of the, uh, the white paper, just to see how much of what we said becomes the truth. But for now, can I say on behalf of Trowers, thank you very much for joining us for a really insightful conversation. Kat, welcome to Avison Young. Um, I, I hope the rest of your career, uh, and well, let alone the career, the day is slightly easier than this. But thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Amadeep. Uh, no I, forgive you, I forgive you for the evergreen comment at the beginning. <laughs> you truly are evergreen. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Kat. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.